to this week's episode of the Just Publix at 365 podcast series. I'm your host, Heidi Nablock, and today I'm going to be talking with Professor Ashley Dawson, Professor of English at the College of Staten Island. Today, we're going to be talking about his work on the history of resistance, as well as his work as web co-editor of Social Text. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. Hi, Ashley. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm happy to be um, here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Um, so I guess first I kind of want to delve into your scholarship quickly so we can let our listeners know the work that you've done and then maybe how that has impacted um, the social justice work that you've done. Um, so focusing on Mongrel Nation uh, for a second. Uh, so you really you've documented the resistance by African, Asian, Caribbean and white Britons to really insular representations of national identity. And what led you to focus on the history of resistance? I know that you're in an English department and kind of where did those narratives of resistance kind of come up for you? Sure, sure. Um, well, I was born in South Africa. Um, my mother's South African and my dad's British. Um, and um, my family spent a lot of time wishing they weren't in South Africa because of the conditions there. And actually, that's something I'm working on in a new project about sort of settler colonial denial. Um, but that's, I'll maybe talk about that later. Um, however, Britain was always kind of a lodestar for, for me growing up. Um, and uh, although I ended up living with my family here in the U.S., my mother's brother ended up in um, in London, and most of my dad's family is, is in Britain. So um, uh, when I started out graduate school, I ended up staying in London for quite some time in between my master's degree and my PhD. And while I was staying there, um, I went to this really amazing public forum um, about the uh, killing of Stephen Lawrence, um, who was Afro-Caribbean, um, and the police had covered up um, the fact that he had been killed by a group of young white men, basically. Um, and so what I witnessed was this sort of people's court because the actual, you know, legal mechanisms had stymied any kind of investigation. Um, and there were a lot of amazing intellectuals from um, the uh, British Asian and Black British community there, including Paul Gilroy. Um, uh, and I saw them giving testimony about community defense efforts of various different kinds and about the history of um, racial targeting of these communities by um, police forces. So I guess um, a whole history of resistance was opened up to me, um, which was very galvanizing and, and very interesting. And um, the role that intellectuals could play as part of that struggle um, became really apparent. Um, and. You know, I was uh, really moved by that and excited by that. And then during that same period, it was about a six-month period um, that I was there, uh, the Satanic Verses had been published, and there was a gigantic march against the Satanic Verses in London. And um, I watched on television as the march, which was um, you know, made up uh, predominantly of... Um, British Muslims, um, but also people from other parts of Europe, um, and then also white skinheads, which was really bizarre and sort of an interesting configuration to think about, um, uh, sort of went through the middle of London um, protesting against the Satanic Verses. Um, and at one point there was a picket 
um, by a group of um, women um, whose name was Women Against Fundamentalism. And it caused a kind of mini riot because some of the marchers started attacking them. And um, uh, the women uh, in the group were of various different ethnic backgrounds and they were protesting against fundamentalism um, in various different religions, um, you know, Catholicism uh, in sort of Jewish Zionism as well as in uh, 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 Islam. And so I was really fascinated by that moment and I think it um, made me want to understand what was going on in Britain a little bit more. And I'd been out of South Africa for quite some time um, and been back to Britain um, more frequently. So, um, uh, you know, my family didn't go back to South Africa because of apartheid. So I suppose I felt like I wanted to think about what was happening in Britain and connect with the attempt to deal with racism in Britain in many ways, which I saw in my family all the time. And of course, in myself in various different ways. So, And you mentioned some of these things already, kind of you just alluded to them now, but um, how have uh, migrant communities established a sense of self and community in nations that, you know, fail to kind of recognize them? Right. That's a great question. Um, it's complicated in Britain because there, there was not so much a kind of national group of or a group of national umbrella organizations like the NAACP here in the United States for instance so um, if you begin to study the history um, in Britain um, from the period after World War II when um, in that there are always people of color in Britain from way 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 back obviously but um, real sort of mass migration began after World War II um, and um, significant uh, resistance to white racism began um, in that period. Um, but there weren't any real sort of umbrella organizations. Um, and so if you begin to look into the history, it might seem that there wasn't resistance um, uh, at first, but that's clearly not true. And in fact, what you, um, or what I at least found when I began to research some of this was that um, the resistance often took um, a kind of cultural form, right? So um, some of the, initial attempts to articulate community um, identity and to push back against ideas of um, people of color not belonging in Britain for kind of cultural reasons were around the formation of uh, Carnival, for instance, in Britain, right? What had happened is that after World War II, although there was a little bit of eugenic stuff that kept going, um, uh, Churchill was involved with a kind of pretty eugenically tinged commission after World War II talking about the need to maintain British stock or something like that. But, you know, of course, there was the fact that Britain had um, won a, a war against Nazism with its racist principles. And also there was the fact that Britain was an empire, and so it had to be somewhat inclusive of the people of the empire, very broadly speaking. And so there was no sort of definition of national identity, juridically speaking. Um, people could come from any part of the empire um, and move to Britain because they're all British subjects. So there weren't restrictions of movement. So what happened was that the restrictions were still racial, but they were more in terms of culture, more in terms of, you know, sort of white identity and cultural institutions um, being the things that defined who got to reside in Britain. Um, and so the pushback came in terms of defining um, 
cultural identity that was not a sunlit story, but still, you know, got to belong, right? Um, and there are sort of really interesting um, attempts to do this. Uh, Carnival is, is a great example, right? I mean, Carnival originates in, in Trinidad, and um, there's a long history of the um, colonial authorities trying to suppress it um, because it was uh, basically a um, kind of appropriation of the elite culture of the plantation class you know they would have balls and all sorts of fancy things and carnival became you know a, a real appropriation of that culture and a satirization of the elite and so those traditions carried on um, and were brought to Britain in order to sort of proclaim the right of the community to to belong in Britain um, and they were met with sort of real heavy repression so in the 1970s there were street battles about whether or not um, the Caribbean communities in Britain got to hold Carnival. Um, so that's just one kind of example of how this this kind of pushback happened. Yeah, and that brings me perfectly into the next uh, question, which is how did members of the post-colonial diaspora help to reconfigure social categories such as race, gender, sexuality, that really cemented together the conventional definitions of national identity. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Um, yeah, um, so it was really important, I think, to um, uh, challenge notions of national belonging, which were codified in terms of ethnicity. Um, and as I said previously, um, there was there was some struggle about this, you know. Figures like V.S. Naipaul um, notoriously believed that people from the colonies were sort of mimic men, you know, and didn't really have their own culture and had to take on the culture of the the colonizers, or you know, in his case, metropolitan British sort of imperial identity. So it didn't happen necessarily easily. It took quite a lot of work. Um, and so that sort of cultural work happened um, in the 60s um, and 70s and 80s. Um, and that's one of the things, uh, sort of the main threads of my book is to trace how this happened. So um, groups like um, the Caribbean Artists Movement um, were um, you know, people who were moving backwards and forwards between the Caribbean and who were interested in sort of excavating some of the traditions um, uh, of kind of cultural identity in the Caribbean as part of an attempt to um, reconfigure what it meant to be British and Caribbean at the same time. And then you got a sort of second generation of folks like Linton Kwesi Johnson, for instance, who were, um, if not born in Britain, had very much grown up in Britain, but were interested in taking um, cultural forms from the Caribbean. Um, uh, like you know reggae music for instance um, and um, transforming them in a British context and using them to um, fight racism and to articulate uh, community identity um, but all of this um, was very mobile and uh, you know I don't want to give the impression that communities were homogeneous right so like um, in the 1980s there was a whole generation of filmmakers like um, Isaac Julian for instance John Acomfra folks uh, in the Sankofa um, Film Collective who wanted to create forms of expression which were not too linear and documentarian and didactic um, because that's what the previous generation had been doing and so you know they made films like Hansworth Songs that um, 
are really quite avant-garde and experimental, even while they're documenting community protests against heavy policing strategies. Um, you know, the so-called uh, sus laws, which allowed police to stop people whom they suspected of engaging in some sort of illicit behavior. Um, so yeah, there was this kind of formal innovation that was part of forging new forms of identity in Britain. Um, and there was also um, kind of political contention um, within communities. Uh, so um, uh, black and Asian feminists were very much involved in the uh, mid to late 70s and through the 80s in challenging um, ideas about blackness as a unitary category. And, uh, you know, of course, that had a political component, too, um, as well as an artistic component. Um, uh, so very interesting um, filmmaking being done uh, where the kind of formal innovations were linked to um, interrupting some kind of a notion of a homo homogenous subject and a homogenous community. Um, and I think that kind of work, um, you know, there, there are dangers of fragmentation, and some people say that the satanic verses affair in some ways um, was lamentable because it broke apart a kind of political definition of blackness, which distinguishes activism in Britain very much from the United States, where um, I think blackness has tended to be more of a kind of ethnic category than a political category, right? So in Britain, through the 60s, 70s, and, and uh, most of the 80s, there was this idea of um, anyone who was racialized, um, who, you know, was treated as a subject who did not belong, was was black, and therefore you sort of organized under a united front. Um, and even though that pressure had been put on that category um, by, for instance, a feminist uh, of color critique, nonetheless, by the late 80s, you know, there was a huge explosion. And like even the category of Asian was rupturing around whether you're Muslim or what kind of you know, Muslim you were. And, that, uh, uh, and so any kind of notion of unified Asian identity was breaking up, let alone um, some sort of united front around blackness. So there was a lot of contention, but nonetheless, there were, I think, very admirable and, and powerful political movements which always had a cultural component in Britain. Great and I would like to ask you now kind of transition a little bit and talk about your work with social texts. Um, so you're um, web co-editor of social texts and could you just tell us a little bit about your goals for the web portion of social texts? Sure sure. Um, so the idea with the web portion was to um, start something that allowed us to move more quickly than traditional academic publications while maintaining the the rigor of an academic publication. So it's been challenging in some ways um, because we've had to try and think about forms of peer review which um, move faster than traditional peer review. Um, so what we've tried to do is sort of think about a kind of mid-level peer review that um, uh, alerts people who are contributing um, to something like our Periscope dossiers, which I think have been um, the faucet of the website that has gained the most attention. These are, these are um, collections of essays, usually about 800 to 1200 words um, that are organized around a common topic. So for instance, we did one after the earthquake in, in Haiti. Um, uh, a few years ago, we've um, done them around particular books like um, Jose Munoz's last book. Um, 
uh, and um, we've done them around um, political events of various different kinds, such as the Copenhagen Conference on Climate Change. Um, so quite a few different uh, organizing rubrics for the dossiers, but we've always wanted to get a, a quick response out as a result. So we've tried to pioneer mid-level peer uh, review um, that allows people to still get their stuff into print while giving them some kind of good feedback. Um, so that's what we've really tried to do. We have ambitions to also make use of the web's capacity to use images and audio, but um, I think we still have some ways to go in that regard. Uh, we're excited about expanding. And so how do you see kind of this academic work, both the academic work that you were talking about now and your work with social jest? or social texts impacting kind of your social justice work, which I've also seen, you know, you've written blog posts about climate change and, you know, you've written blog posts about May Day. Mm -hmm. um, so I was just wondering how you see those kind of working together. Right, right. Um, yeah, well, I, I think that intellectuals have a responsibility. Uh, we are tremendously fortunate in the resources of various different kinds that were given in the United States, although CUNY obviously it often um, it feels like we're under attack, and I think we need to avoid having a bunker mentality. Um, but we we do have um, good fortune, and with it comes responsibility to try and engage. I think, and um, something like social text online um, allows us to do that because obviously it can project our voices out to a much wider audience. We um, try to get stuff up quickly on the web, as I said, but we also uh, make it open access so that people can use it without having to pay, as people still do for most academic publications. Um, and um, yeah, we, we, we really try to um, make sure that we're engaging topically and writing in a way that is accessible. So one of the things I've found as editor is that it's often quite hard when we have people trying to put together a dossier for Periscope um, for the website. It's quite hard to um, get them to understand that we want short pieces. You know, we want 800 words. It's very difficult for academics to write um, uh, at that brief length and um, often also hard for them to write in a way that is accessible and punchy while still conveying very complicated ideas and so that's that's our goal and you know I, I studied with Edward Said and Rob Nixon and Anne McClintock who really did fancy themselves to be public intellectuals I was at grad school sort of at the tail end of the big vogue for deconstruction um, and you know, obviously deconstruction is very useful in many ways and um, many of my colleagues uh, use it so I don't want to slag it too much but um, uh, I think that Said in particular constantly fought against the opaque quality of the writing of many folks in the academy who were involved with that sort of trend. Um, and so, yeah, I think that our project is to try and reach out and to engage with various different communities through our writing and, and to try to open things up. So we've tried to get activists of various different kinds to be in dialogue with academics through the website. It's not always easy, but that's our goal. And are you involved in any other social justice or projects you, you would label as social justice now or have you been in the past? Uh, um, well, the big thing that I did recently was to go to Bolivia to the World People's Conference on um, Climate Justice and the, the Rights of uh, 
Mother Earth. That was in 2010, so it's been a little while now. Um, but I was very much um, transfixed by that. It was an amazing moment um, because things seemed so depressing and bleak after the Copenhagen conference, where you know, sort of Obama came in at the 11th hour and basically destroyed any possibility for a progressive outcome, um, and that had been held up as the conference where finally we're going to get some kind of uh, a just accord to deal with climate um, change. And the, um, I mean, first of all, I was incredibly honored to be invited to go with a delegation of environmental justice activists from New York, um, most of whom are from the Bronx, um, and to go down at the invitation of the Bolivian government. We arrived at the tail end of celebrations for the 10th anniversary of the water wars, which in you know Cochabamba, the water supply, municipal water supply had been privatized by Bechtel, the evil American multinational corporation. Um, and so it felt really incredible to, to be there as an American and the kind of mantle of responsibility that you know fell on us as representatives of um, progressive political movements from the North was, was uh, weighty, um, but also very exciting because people made us feel welcome. The process was incredibly horizontal and um, led to these very progressive accords, which I think are still the sort of benchmark for what the movement for climate justice is fighting for. And since then, I've gone to a number of the counter summits held at the annual um, Conference of Parties meetings organized by the United Nations. Um, I've been involved in the struggle against Keystone um, uh, and the tar sands. Um, and recently, I've been involved in um, trying to put together um, a grant to help um, with recovery work on Staten Island after Hurricane Sandy. So yeah, I think my academic work dovetails to a certain extent with that um, social justice work. It, sometimes it feels as if the one makes it hard to do the other, but uh, one, one tries to do one's best. Yeah, that was going to be, um, I have two more questions. Uh, the first question uh, that you kind of almost, you know, handed me on a silver platter is, how, have you faced any resistance to doing this social justice work from academic colleagues? Have academic colleagues said, hey, this is a waste of time. What are you doing? You know, uh, kind of a keep your nose in the books mentality. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, no, I, I, I would say not. Um, I think we're actually pretty fortunate at CUNY that we get kind of left alone to do what we want. Um, you know, maybe we don't have as many resources as some other institutions, but um, we don't get meddled with, and um, there are good opportunities for collaborating with colleagues in various different ways. So. No, I, I really can say honestly that I don't feel like anybody has ever um, uh, in any way tried to dissuade me from the work that I've been doing academically. And then the second question I have is we've kind of talked about how, um, you know, your academic work impacts this social justice work. But I want to ask you about the other way around. So how does your social justice work impact your academic work if we're drawing hard lines between the two? Right. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I would like to avoid drawing hard lines between the two, but, um, um, well, I suppose it, it, it forces one to keep, keep it real on some kind of level, you know, um, to remain connected. I mean, in terms of 
my academic work, I also think it's important to think about academic work kind of broadly. So um, I'm chair of the English department at College of Staten Island, and um, as anybody involved with CUNY knows, we've been having a big fight around the um, curriculum, uh, particularly around the Pathways Initiative, and attempts to maintain faculty control over the curriculum. Um, and so at College of Staten Island, we actually had a vote of no confidence in both our provost and our president, um, and ousted them uh, successfully, then had a new provost come in, and so we've been trying to work with him while still resisting um, the inevitable implementation of pathways. Um, so I suppose um, dealing with social justice issues allows me to um, keep the big picture and understand what the bigger stakes are um, and not get too demoralized because often it can seem like one is fighting over uh, such complicated and Byzantine but nonetheless, you know, potentially inconsequential things, you know, do we cut composition from four hours to three and, you know, spending a year and a half of one's life every, every couple of days arguing with the provost about that, it can seem sort of very deadening, but the bigger picture is the education, the quality of public education in the United States, um, and that's certainly something worth fighting for. Um, and so some of the other work that I've done around climate justice, you know, I think has helped me be aware of the broader stakes of these kinds of um, battles. Um, and obviously, um, you know, my aspiration is um, when I'm writing about something like climate justice struggles to, to write in a way that um, will connect with a broader public and have some public impact. Um, and that's, that's a challenge. I mean, think the sort of academic world is reconfiguring very quickly these days. It's not clear exactly what publishing will look like in a couple of years. Um, but something like what we're doing right now is I think part of the exciting new opportunities that are arising. So I think it's also a time of potential growth and the possibility for outreach. So I'm very uh, grateful for, uh, to you for setting up an initiative like this. Thank you so much for coming and talking with us today. It was great to talk with you. My pleasure. That was this week's interview with Professor Ashley Dawson. Join us next week for a conversation with Frances Fox Piven on her work on the development of the welfare state, political movements, urban politics, voting, and electoral politics. It's an interview you don't want to miss. See you next week. Just Publics at 365 is a project of the Graduate Center CUNY, located at 365 Fifth Avenue, where you will find the life of the mind in the heart of the city. Just Publics at 365 is funded by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide.